0: Welcome to High Lawn Baptist Church in St. Albans, West Virginia, where our mission is to know Christ and to make Christ known. We pray that you are blessed by the sharing of God's truth for us this day. For more information, visit us online at highlawnbaptistchurch.org. Luke chapter 4, if you would go ahead and turn there your copy of God's Word. And this sermon is going to be a little um, little unique. In your bulletins and in your notes, you have my regular three points. But instead of going through them in a blow-by-blow type of way, I'm going to ask for you to pencil down what you see and what you notice. Because in this time, we're going to examine the Scripture and let the Scripture be the outline of this message. The title of this message is An Unlikely Messiah, and the reason that it's titled that way is because Jesus was, in his day, in his day, he was not accepted by the people that he came to save. And in this one instance, he is not only going to his own people of Israel, he's going to his hometown in Nazareth. Now, just to to set the story up for you, he had just been involved in in a considerable ministry in the big city of the area, the city of Capernaum. It was a new city. It was a Roman-style city. It was a city that more than likely his father had helped to construct. So it was a city that that he knew well. This was also the base of operations for, uh, for Peter's fishing enterprise and for the family business that John, that Andrew came from. This was the place where, as Jesus was walking along the shore of the Galilee, that he would call most of his disciples. So Jesus has performed miracles here. Jesus has taught here. Jesus has started his ministry here, and now we see that he's going home. These three things I want you to notice. Um, If you'll go ahead. When we take a look as Jesus enters into the synagogue, what were the wants of the people that he was sitting in front of? What are our wants today? What is the worldly view of what a Messiah should be? Now there's the Jesus who's the actual Jesus of the Bible, the Jesus of history the Jesus who's the messianic figure, the teacher, the sacrifice, the son of God, but there's this misconception, this miscreated image that the world carves for us as to what we think that he should be. We know him as all-wise and all-loving, but does that also mean all accepting? We think of him as being the healer, as being the person who, with a touch, can transform someone of an incurable disease and make them fully whole. But does that also uh, mean that we should treat him like an ATM machine? Like we should just ask of anything and it will automatically be granted to us. What is the world's image of a messianic figure? We're also gonna be talking about what I call the unseen world. That means the world of the spirit. As we're discussing what's going on with Jesus, what is his ministry to the soul? we tend to think of things from a very worldly perspective, a here and now perspective. That if it's not something that affects our bank accounts, if it's not something that affects our real estate, if it's not something that affects uh, the way that we provide for our families, then it's virtually useless. But there is a war going on right now in which you, as a person possessing an immortal soul, are both the pawn and the prize of a battle that's been raging for several thousands of years. You are the beloved child of God. But you are also a being that the enemy wants to rob away from the family of God. And he will do that by trying to take down your testimony, trying to uh, try to put you in situations that will test your faith in order to see it fail. Now I'm not saying that you can lose your salvation. What I am saying is that the enemy works tirelessly to make sure that you never come to repentance in the first place. So there is a war going on for your eternal destiny. Not just what is going on in the here and now, but that your hereafter hangs in the balance. Then there is God's plan. The first point asks you to consider what the world's plan is, what our view of of Christ's mission is, but there's also God's plan that I want you to consider. What is the role of the Messiah? What is the role of salvation? What is God doing when He sends an impoverished peasant boy as His anointed one? Israel was not looking for their Savior to be someone from a know-nothing family who was penniless. They wanted someone from David's royal lineage who had a commanding presence, who had a powerful army in his command, who had unlimited resources of gold and finery. And yet what they got, as Scripture was fulfilled, the first coming of Christ saw none of this. A teacher who was meek and lowly. A person who instead of raising angel armies to his command, Chose instead to offer his life for you and for me. Luke 4, starting with verse 14. And again, please follow along with me as we begin reading together. Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit, and news spread about him through the whole countryside. He was teaching in their synagogues, and everyone praised him. So as he was doing his ministry through the big city, the word of this small town boy came back to his small town. They heard about the miracles, they heard about the healing, they heard about the compassion, they heard about his love. And they also claimed him as a rabbi. Now, what that means in this cultural context, if you were a good Jew in the first century, you would meet in a synagogue that would probably be something along the lines of a a seven-sided building that had an open area, probably either a dirt or a stone floor, with a single bench. That bench was the bench of the rabbi. And as they had this awe and respect for Torah, for the word of God, we would would stand up to honor the reading of God's word. And the attendants of the synagogue would carry through in almost a parade-like fashion the scroll before the teacher's bench. And then they would unroll the scroll. And the teacher, using a staff so that it would not be touched by human hands, would read the scroll aloud. And then when he was finished with his reading, the scroll would be re-rolled, it would be covered, so again it would not be touched by unclean hands, it would be carted away, and the master teacher would sit on the bench, and then the rest of the congregation would sit learning at at his feet, that's where that phrase comes from. And it's at that point that he would begin the series of sermon trying to explain to the congregation this is what the Torah meant or this is what the prophets meant or this is how things are unfolding in the world of today. This was his mission and his ministry. This would not be something that a regular itinerant pre- preacher would be allowed to do. This is not something that, that, a, that a non-rabbi would have to do. You had to be qualified. You had to have certain credentials to your name. You had to be well-known. Who was your teacher? What school do you hail from? These were questions that were being asked. And yet, this was apparently Jesus' custom. So well regarded as a rabbi, not just someone who put down the hammer and saw in his father's carpenter shop one day and decided to go preaching. He was known as a master teacher. Someone with authority of the word of God. So when he went around preaching in synagogues, the word of God tells us now through the pen of Luke... That it was his custom to preach, to be welcomed as a traveling pastor. And now, as his custom dictates, he comes into the house of God. He assumes a place of honor in their midst over the teacher's bench, and the attendants are bringing him the scroll or parading him in front of us, and the congregation is standing to honor the reading of the Word of God. Verse 16. He went up to Nazareth where he had been brought up. And on the Sabbath day he went into the synagogue. As was his custom. He stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. Unrolling it he found the place where it is written. The spirit of the Lord is upon me. Because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim the freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind. He has set the captive or the oppressed free to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Now he pauses right there. I know in this particular version of the word of God, there's a period. But this is not the end of this messianic mission statement. What the prophet is writing down right now is an identifying mark. When you see this person fulfilling all of these things, you will know that this is the king of kings and the lord of lords. You will know that this is the promised one to Israel. You will know that this is the prophet in the likeness of Moses that was promised from centuries past. You will know that this is the coming king who will redeem your kingdom. But Jesus stops reading right there. If you'll take a look with me at the actual text from the book of Isaiah, it actually goes on. Isaiah writes, the spirit of the Lord is on me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. That's what he read. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted. That's what he read, to proclaim liberty to the captives. And freedom to the prisoners, he's read that to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Okay, he's read all that. But then we see there's the comma followed by the words, and the day of our God's what? Vengeance. This is what Israel wanted. This is what Israel had been promised. This was the image that they had crafted in their minds of the person that God was sending to them. This was not, this would not be a gentle teacher, someone who was meek and mild. This would be the commander of armies. This would be the person who would rain down vengeance upon Rome, upon Syria, upon all of Israel's oppressors. This is the person who would take this tiny little, less than the size of New Jersey area of land in the Levant and turn it into a great nation, a thriving empire. This is what Israel craved in their popular conception of who her Messiah would be. But Jesus, instead of going on in the scroll of this prophet, he stops. As if to say, this is God's plan. This will come to pass, but for right now, my ministry is different. For right now, the day of vengeance of our God, it's not yet time for Right now, we're going to see something a little different. So to continue on, verse 20 says, that our Savior then rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. The eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fixed on him. Now remember, the scroll would have been taken up, it would have been covered, it would have been put back in a really ornate box they call the Ark. And as Jesus sits down on the teacher's bench, that's their signal to sit down and to hear the lesson of his feet. And here he gives possibly the shortest of his sermons. Today, as you listen, the scripture has what? The scripture has been fulfilled. Where's the rest of it? Where is God's vengeance? Where is God's anger? Where is God's army? Where is the restoration of the kingdom? That's one thought. That's who they wanted to be their Messiah. That was the image they were going for. But there was also the other part of that image. This is Joseph's son. This is the carpenter's boy. Is not his mother and his brothers and sisters here with us? Is he not impoverished? Is he not a lowly peasant? He has the wrong last name. He has the wrong bank account. He has the wrong sense of politics. He has no power. He has no influence. He's done a few magic tricks. Let's see the magic tricks. This was what was going on in their mind. You can't be the Messiah. You don't qualify. You're not the general. You're not rich. You're not powerful. You have the wrong family name. The wrong background. Verse 22, they were all speaking well of him and were amazed by the gracious words that came from him. Yet they said, isn't this Joseph's son? The doubt was starting to creep in. Then he said to them, as if to cut them off mid-sentence, as if to stop them because he was reading their hearts the same way he did in John chapter 3. He said to them, no doubt you will quote this proverb to me. Physician, heal what? Thyself, Doctor, heal yourself. What we've heard that took place in Capernaum, do here in your hometown also. We want to see the signs and wonders. We want to see the magic. We don't want to hear the word of God. We don't want to to be convicted. We want you to give for us, to do for us, to be there for us. We want the ATM machine in the sky. We want the sights, the wonder. We want the song and the dance. We want the organ monkey. We want the show, not the substance. One of the ways that you can tell whether or whether or not a revival service actually works as a revival service is when they get out of the service, when they are approaching the car, when they've got the hand on their handle and about ready to leave, ask them if they remember what was said in the sermon. Not how good the music was, not how much of a, of a lift that they were feeling at the time, when the word of God was opened, do you remember what it said? Were you convicted by it? Were you transformed by it? Did you make a decision through it? Or were you just there for the sights, the sounds, the entertainment? Jesus said that the word of God is like a two-edged sword, able to cleave the motives of any human heart, And here we're getting an idea of the motive. We don't want the convicting presence of God. We want the show. And if we don't get the show, we will visit, we will visit harm upon you. We will visit violence upon you. Physician, heal yourself, translation. If you don't do the signs and wonders for us, then we will put a situation in place where you'll have to do it for you. It's a threat that Jesus is uncovering in their hearts. And this is his home church. This is the place where he grew up. No doubt these were people who went to his dad's shop to get something repaired or built. People that that were, that he grew up with. He continued in verse 24, truly I tell you that no prophet is accepted in his hometown. But I say to you there were certainly many widows in Israel in Elijah's days when the sky was shut up for three years and six months while a great famine came over the land, yet Elijah did not send any to them except a widow at Zarephath in Sidon. Now, we often take a look at this as we're reading in this story, and we skip over it because we have no idea what it means. Because we typically look past the Old Testament. In Elijah's day, God was punishing the people of Israel because they had turned away from worshiping him. They brought idols into the very house of God. They started praying to him and to the Canaanite gods at the same time. God is a jealous God, the word tells us. Not jealous in the fact that he wants that which doesn't belong to him, but he is zealous for that which does belong to him. When he he claims the people of Israel as his own prized possession, When he claims their salvation as his work out of love for them and they turn their back on him, how do you think that makes him feel? So to bring their attention back to God where it should have always been, he shuts up the clouds for years. And he sends a prophet of God, Elijah, to declare before them their guilt and their sin. And in Elijah's day, Jesus is telling them, that uh, because the people of God had turned their backs on God, when Elijah the prophet was walking through the land, when he was going from uh, border to border in Israel, trying to escape the wrath of, of King Ahab, he was commanded to visit the home of a Seraphonician woman, of a Gentile, of someone who, we, who they would consider unclean. And he not only provided for her needs... Through the power of God, he also saved from death a healing work upon her only son. The people of God in this prophet's day rejected the prophet, so he did something for an outsider. That's what Jesus is saying. And he goes on with the exact same thing for the, for the next prophet, Elijah. In verse 27, the prophet Elisha's time, where there were many in Israel who had leprosy, yet not one of them were cleansed except Naaman the Syrian. In the day of this prophet, the same thing happened. The people of God turned their backs on God. They turned their backs on the prophets of God. So this prophet was commanded to do a healing work, and he did it, he showed mercy to another Gentile, to a soldier to an oppressor, to the enemy of the people of God. He showed the kindness of God to someone who was the enemy of the nation of Israel. So what Jesus is telling his own hometown church is that I know in your hearts you have turned your back on me and you have turned your back on God. So God is withholding from you his signs and his wonders because you are withholding your love for him. You are withholding your love for him. Verse 28, and when they heard this, everyone in the synagogue was angered. They knew this story. They knew what he was saying. They picked no bones about it. So you're calling us, you you say that you're not going to do what we want. You're not the type of Messiah that we want. You do the signs and wonders for perfect strangers, but not for us. You don't love God. You want the show, but not the substance. You want the scripture, but not the conviction. You want the entertainment instead of the transformation. When they'd heard these things, they were enraged. They got up and drove him out of town and brought him to the edge of the hill on which their town was built, intending to what? Hurl him over the the cliff. But he passed right through the crowd and went on his way. There are a few things that we should gather from this. If we don't come into the presence of God expecting him to be there. If we don't come into the presence of God expecting to be and willing to be transformed. If we don't come into the presence of God expecting God to reveal himself as he is. Not as we want him to be. Then we will not receive the blessing that he has reserved for us. The reason that in their eyes Jesus was the wrong Messiah is because they wanted one aspect and one aspect only of the Messiah's mission. Restore the kingdom of Israel. They wanted worldly power. They wanted worldly influence. They wanted worldly prestige. They wanted that last bit after the comma, vengeance of the Lord because they thought that they were in the right. They thought that vengeance of the Lord meant the vengeance of Israel. For the person of Jesus, they wanted in a Messiah someone with the right last name. They wanted a political figure who was wealthy. They wanted somebody from, yes, from David's kingly line but someone who had been preserved. Not the carpenter's son, but they wanted the guy at the city gate. They wanted the guy who had all the wealth. They wanted the person with the flowing robes. They wanted the person with their own private army. They wanted the person who was a prince who would reclaim a literal earthly crown for the kingdom at this time. And they wanted to be in on that. But he, he's grown up with us. He can't be the Messiah. He doesn't have that kind of name. He doesn't have that kind of wealth. He doesn't have that kind of prestige. He doesn't have that flash. We've heard that he went to the big city and that he did a few amazing things that we can find entertaining. We'd like to see him do it here. But Jesus says, because you have not prepared your hearts to be transformed, because you have withheld your love for God and placed conditions on your love for God, God will now withhold his signs and wonders from you, his blessings from you. Can you imagine? Can you imagine? And they get so enraged when he confronts them with their own sin that they try to kill him. Someone who was, a, someone who was one of their own. Someone who had sat on the floor with them who had played as a child with their children. Someone who the community mothers and grandmothers would have helped to raise. They tried to kill him because they were so enraged by what he said. A people who do not go before God with a willingness to be changed into his image. Who are wanting him to serve them instead of them to serve him, are a people that will not be blessed. Jesus was an unlikely Messiah in their eyes because they wanted a Messiah to come in their image. God had instead chosen to send someone of meek and lowly estate to love them to teach them, to correct them, to bring them the proper image of God, to transform their lives, to get them to see him as he really is. It's only after that he's accomplished this that we will see that last bit after the comma fulfilled. What a strange way to save the world. I want you to leave you with this thought. Next Sunday, unless I'm led otherwise, we're gonna be talking about the temptations of Christ. And I want you to consider, when the enemy brought the Savior to this mountain to see all the nations of the world in one sight, and he said to our Savior, All this will I give you if you simply do what? Worship me. What is he tempting Jesus with? Jesus is God incarnate. The enemy knows that. All this is already Christ. What the enemy is doing is is tempting him by saying you don't have to go to the cross. I'll go ahead and give you all of this if you don't go to the cross, if you acknowledge me instead of your father, I will spare you your death. Think about that for a second. Jesus was offered the ability to go ahead and claim his kingdom without having to have the centurion put nails through his hands and through his feet, to have him not be strung up on a piece of wood in embarrassment before the people of Israel, to not have his face ripped apart as they pulled his beard, to not have the crown of thorns beaten upon his head, to not be, as the, as the prophet proclaims, not be unrecognizable as a man. So severe was he beaten. The enemy was saying all you have to do is worship me and you never have to go to the cross. I'll go ahead and give this to you. And I want you to notice that out of his love for you, Jesus could have been the Messiah that they wanted. He could have given in. Well, he wasn't going to give in. Don't mistake me in that. But think about this for a second. He could have gone ahead and claimed the world. He could have gone ahead and claimed the earthly crown. He could have gone ahead and and forsaken the sacrifice that would free our souls from eternal condemnation. The same sacrifice that made us children of the living God. He could have not had to have made that sacrifice. But out of his love, that was the temptation of Christ. Not necessarily the title deed to the kingdoms because it was already his. The enemy was trying to get him to skip the step where he came to make us his children. Jesus looked at that temptation and he said no. Out of his love for you, for me, for everyone who claims him as Savior and Lord, he chose the nails, he chose the crown of thorns. He chose the cross and the mocking and the jeering and the humiliation. He chose all of that out of his love for us. What the synagogue in Nazareth can teach us is that when we come here, when we approach his throne of grace, we need to do so with a willing heart to be changed, with an open mind to see him as he is, not as we want him to be, and with an open voice, open hands to do his work, to proclaim his message, and to sing his praises and praise and thanksgiving for everything that he's done for us. Thank God for the first coming and praise God that he's coming again. And all God's people said, And Heavenly Father, as we come to you today, as we close the service of the word and enter into the time of invitation, Lord, for those times that we have not accepted you as you truly are, for those times that we've tried to recast you in our image, for those times that we have not come to your throne with praise and thanksgiving in expectation and anticipation of your blessing, please forgive us. Please change our hearts to receive you just as you are. Convict us for those times that we have not to propel us into your service. For any that have yet to come to know you in a free pardon of sin. For any that are holding on to things that are better left out of our way. For those that need that special transforming touch. For those that just need a special touch of your hand. those that have prayer concerns. Lord, whatever the case may be, whatever is burdening the hearts of our people here, call them forward as we enter into this time of invitation. As the musicians sing, trouble their hearts that they may find their peace and rest in You. Be here with us. Let us know, sense, and feel Your presence now. In the matchless name of Christ, we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to the latest podcast from High Lawn Baptist Church. If you'd like to learn more about Hylon Baptist Church or donate to our ongoing ministry, you can do so online at highlawnbaptistchurch.org. We believe that when you love God, you share his word, and when you love others, you spread the gospel. We hope you enjoyed today's message and pray that you'll join us again next time. Once again, thank you for listening.